0: Pope Francis creates 20 new cardinals, further shaping the college that will one day choose his successor. And they held closed-door discussions on the reform of the Roman Curia. What should the Catholic faithful take from all of this? Editor-in-chief of thecatholicthing.org, Robert Royal, reports from Rome. The World Over begins right now. Arroyo. A warm welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. We have an important show for you tonight. If you'd like to comment, send me a tweet. I'm at Raymond Arroyo. Lots to cover this evening. Let's get started. About 200 cardinals uh, out of the college's 226 participated in an extraordinary consistory in Rome this week, the largest meeting of the College of Cardinals in Francis's 10 year pontificate. The last gathering, close to this size, was at the Synod on the Family in 2015. The closed-door meetings were convened by Pope Francis to reflect on his apostolic constitution called Preach the Gospel, the document on the reform of the Roman Curia. Joining me now from Rome with the latest on this consistory is editor-in-chief of the thing.org member of the papal posse, Robert Royal. Thanks for staying up for us. Bob, what are you hearing about the discussions during these two days of meeting? And does it have any form at all, this consistory?
1: Well, look, I have to say that it's rather disappointing to look at what actually happened. There wasn't a great deal of news. Three quarters, the two days that the cardinals met with the Holy Father in these private discussions, three quarters of that time was spent discussing this kind of bureaucratic shuffle, the changes about the curia. Um, in the new document that the Holy Father put out, Praedicate Evangelium, and a, you know a lot of the de- de- debate about that was who can actually serve as the head of a Vatican dicastery? Can it be a layman? Can it be a lay woman? Can they have authority over a bishop? These uh, you know these are not trivial questions, and there are serious and far-reaching theological. Um, consequences of them. But in the the current situation of the church and the current situation in the world, I don't think these are the most burning issues. The other thing that was scheduled to be talked about was the Jubilee year in 2025. So what's going to happen over the next three years? Strangely, you know, even some of the, the quite sympathetic outlets to the Holy Father just said, you know, there was some praise for the Vatican financial reforms. Um, There was some discussion about some other things. And strangely, I think one of the the odd things that came out of this this consistory is that many of the cardinals still want to know. We've been in this process now for, what, a year, year and a half. They want to know what synodality is. Because next October, just a little over a year from now, the actual synod on synodality is going to take place in 2023. So here we have 200 of the church's top leaders who a year and a half into the, the synodal process don't even know what synodality is. So for me, that was one of well, the strangest so, things come out of the past couple yeah, of years. Yeah, some of them even challenged
0: the idea. I noticed there were some uh, historians there among the cardinals who said, wait a minute, where did this come from? There's no real historical precedent for this. What was the mood in Rome surrounding this extraordinary synod, uh, Bob?
1: Well, you know, I think that there were some expectations that, that you know, there was there were rumors that when the Holy Father went to L'Aquila, there might be a resignation because the, the, L'Aquila is the tomb of Celestine V, who was the previous pope, the, the only previous pope prior to Benedict XVI who had actually resigned. And obviously the Holy Father's health is slipping a bit. And there were rumors about why was he going there in the midst of, you know, all the cardinals mm-hmm. being here. But I think over it all... Um, the cardinals that I've spoken with since the synod came to an end kind of feel that it fizzled out. Um, you know, there's always talk that these synods give a chance for the cardinals to get to, to get to know one another. And obviously, as you get near the end of a papacy, you want them to know one another well enough to at least begin to think about who wants to see to the papacy. But I'm a little skeptical of this. I mean, they're just... There was just the one day in um, on, on Saturday when the Cardinals were actually made, the new Cardinals were made Cardinals. Then the Pope went off to L'Aquila on Sunday. And then these two days of what were really, I think, rather abstract and, and not very incisive conversations. So how much okay. they got to each other, I really couldn't say that, that, that there was a great deal that was done in these days, but maybe some... You know, some acquaintances are struck up, and maybe some things will follow out of it. But I I think overall, for me, for the people I've been meeting, um, it rather fizzled out. In in recent weeks, Bob, we
0: have seen the church persecuted in uh, Nicaragua, uh, in recent months in Nigeria and China, of course. Any mention of those flashpoints, if you will, for the church at this meeting? Did they consider that at all the state of the
1: martyred church today? Yeah, I didn't hear anything about it. In fact, I wrote, uh, we have a a spinoff from the Catholic thing called the Vatican thing. When I'm here in Rome, we're doing this Vatican thing. It's kind of a a secondary column every day. Uh, And I wrote about this, that, you know, when you think about the threats to the church around the world, the countries you just mentioned, as well as the pressures that we know are being put on Catholic institutions here in the United States. I hear that the same thing is happening in Europe, and they're just expecting that, you know, the EU is going to kind of follow uh, the kinds of things that the Biden administration has done by trying to force Catholic hospitals and schools and whatnot to follow the, the kind of woke culture that now has, has come about. There doesn't seem to have been any sense of urgency about any of that at all. Contrary to what the Holy Father has talked about in other contexts, it was very much inward looking on, on this, you know, this sort of mm. bureaucratic changes. What are we doing with synodality? What are we doing with the jubilee year that's going to come up in 2025. Meanwhile, there are these sharp challenges to the church all around the world, the developed world as well as the developing world, and that seemed to be nowhere anywhere in the discussion.
0: Bob, Cardinal Walter Brandmuller, uh, a well-known traditionalist, one of the Dubia cardinals, made an interesting request during this extraordinary synod that leaked out, uh, and that was that the right to vote in a papal conclave be restricted. According to Brandmuller, uh, serious reflection should be given to the idea of limiting the right to vote in conclave, for example, to cardinals residing in Rome, while the others, still cardinals, could share the status of cardinals over 80, meaning they can't vote. Now, Bob, Cardinal Brandmuller's concern is that non-curial cardinals from the peripheries, if you will, lack the experience of running the church, the challenges entailed, and don't know each other well, and might be more susceptible to lobbies pushing particular candidates for election. Your thoughts. Does the idea have any support?
1: Well, I suppose you could argue that. I I have to say I was very surprised when he said that, because that means that it's going to be Vatican insiders who are going to be choosing the next uh, lead, you know, leader of the of Worldwide Catholic Church, and maybe there's some strengths in knowing, you know, bureaucratically how to operate, but it seems to me that, look, they, the Holy Father has actually appointed two different types of, of cardinals. I think we've talked about this before. Obviously, Cardinal mm-hmm. McElroy from San Diego is very much in the line of Pope Francis. He's concerned about the environment. He's concerned about being welcoming, immigrants, you know, all that sort of thing. I, my own reading is that the cardinals from the peripheries to Tend to be much more traditional, and we know that in in recent synods, that the Africans, for example, have been very strong in resisting any attempt to weaken church teaching on homosexuality. You know, not not the reception or, or the 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 inclusion of, of sincere homosexuals who are, who are trying to live the, the Catholic life uh, in parishes and whatnot, but you know, resisting that ideological takeover. So I, I'm a little bit ambivalent about this. It seems to me that it's a good idea to have cardinals from outside the, you know, the usual suspects. It seems to me to be good to have even some of these cardinals from the peripheries. They may not know the, the bureaucratic running of the church, but they are deeply um, committed to a more traditional Catholicism. I think their voices need to be heard in choosing whoever is going to be the successor to Pope Francis. Hmm.
0: The, now, this extraordinary consistory was preceded by the installation of 20 new cardinals, as we mentioned earlier. And uh, as the Pope has done in the past, he elevated several men from these peripheries you mentioned. Brazil, Mongolia, India, Nigeria, Paraguay, and East Timor were represented. There was the one cardinal from the US, San Diego Cardinal Bishop Robert McElroy. What do these new cardinals tell us about the mind of Francis and where do you think he's guiding the church here? Or where does he intend the church to go? Better asked, Bob.
1: Well, it's clear that there is this ideological element that we we just talked about. And and I think Cardinal McElroy, um, you know, you would expect that that, that Archbishop uh, Jose Gomez from Los Angeles would have received a red hat. He did not. Uh, perhaps Corleone from San Francisco. These are traditional seas in the United States that are large uh, cities. Um, McElroy was an auxiliary in San Francisco and was a bit of a you know a problem for them. They didn't really know what to do with him, and then just decided to send him to San Diego. So it's clear that he's reached in in, in instances like that and tried to bring along leadership. And some of the Latin American uh, cardinals are like this as well. People who who are are kind of in his line. But there is this oddity, and I think it is an oddity. You know, we we know that he's talked about the peripheries and going out to the peripheries, but there is this oddity that these small places like Tonga, and one of the youngest cardinals is from Tonga, which is a little island, Uh, down near New Zealand, or, you know, he meets with an Italian missionary who's who's working in Mongolia, and and the next couple of days he announced that he's going to be one of the, the cardinals. So I don't know exactly what he's doing with that, except that um in my experience and you know we we covered the conclave that elected pope francis he isn't a consistent thinker i think there are many parts of his personality that don't always seem to be congruent with one another or concordant with one another and so there really are two elements that that are going on that's there's that kind of more first world progressive element in his thinking about the future Mm -hmm. of the church but there's also this this global, but not in the glo- in international globalist sense, but a, a kind of a, a, a attempt to bring in some other voices. So I don't know where this will go, and I'm not sure he does either.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, this is a graphic. He's now appointed 63% of the uh, the consistory here, the, the College of Cardinals. And you see the breakdown there, 29 uh, percent uh, appointed by Benedict, 8 percent by John Paul II at this point. Um, so, I, I mean, we, we, we begin to see a, an image or a vision of where he's trying to reshape the church, at least a, a, as an image, Uh, But I want to burrow down a bit. San Diego Cardinal Robert McElroy, now Cardinal, told the National Catholic Register regarding what he hopes to see in a future pope, Bob. He said, I would hope the trajectories of the renewal Pope Francis has begun would be a high priority in seeking the next pope. I hope that would be many years down the road, but it'll still be important to try to bring those currents more fully into the life of the church at all levels. Bob, will the next pope be like Francis, especially given that Francis has chosen to elevate so many of these people from far away? Or as you mentioned earlier, might uh, the the more traditional cardinals from places he didn't expect uh,
1: bedevil these plans for
0: a carbon copy successor?
1: Well, one of the things we know, know, there's, there's even some Roman sayings about people who enter the, the conclave as popularly as, as potential popes come out cardinals, you, know, you never. And, and look, we know that the, the, um, the conclave that elected Pope Francis was largely uh, the creation of Popes John Paul II and Pope Benedict XVI, and you would have expected that the kind of the line that they had, um, that they had continued along for 35 or so years would have been expressed in, in Francis, but it didn't happen. Um, I I want to say about Cardinal McElroy. He has been really one of the the cardinals who've kind of pushed the the line of Pope Francis to our bishops. Our bishops have not been very welcoming of it. There was an exchange between him and then Archbishop Shep, who is now retired, in 2019, in which um, McElroy was very strong ab- about not considering abortion the preeminent moral issue in the United States. In other words, the kind of cardinal he would like to see and the kind of talk po- probably he would like to see is someone who wouldn't challenge a Nancy Pelosi, who now tells us that it's a sin to deny people access to abortion. They wouldn't challenge mm-hmm. uh, Joe Biden seriously. We basically would get the kind of uh, business as usual that we have in places like the United States and unfortunately in Europe as well. So Um, There's great uncertainty, I think, about where the church will go after Francis, and perhaps that's a good thing. I don't think we can predict in advance, although I hear, I've heard in the last couple days rumblings that there's a kind of a new St. Gallen mafia that's trying to already begin to shape the next conclave, and who knows what that will result in.
0: Mm. Well, we'll we'll stay tuned for that, but Cardinal Arthur Roach uh, of the UK, who was given the red hat by Pope Francis this weekend and serves as prefect of the dicastery for divine worship and the discipline of the sacraments, he warned about the politicization of debates over the different forms of the mass, Bob. He told Crux those who argue that the reforms of Pope Paul VI and Pope Francis are contrary to church tradition, quote, We've got to be very careful because the church passes on the tradition and it's the church that makes the tradition. It's not people in lobbies that create the tradition. Now, Bob, I thought tradition proceeded apace. I I didn't realize it skipped two papacies. You know, 35 years, you just ignore. Roche went on to say, quote, I always think that for me as an Englishman, a great example to me is our history, our reformation history where our young priests were tortured and very cruelly executed for two things, for the Mass and in faithfulness to the See of Peter, in faithfulness to the Pope. Whenever we celebrate Mass, we always mention at the point of unity, first, that we're in union with the Pope, and second, that we're in union with the Bishop, who is in union with the Pope. I thought Jesus was the first point of unity, and just to give him a tiny little refresher course in Reformation history, they were fighting over a marriage annulment. Let's not forget, it was the marriage that was the centerpiece and doctrine they were defending, and uh, most of the bishops folded. Your thoughts, Bob, as you hear all of that?
1: Well, you know, it was Benedict the 16th, back when he was just a theologian, Joseph Ratzinger, who said that the change in the liturgy that Paul VI introduced the radical change that he introduced in the 1960s it had never happened before in the history of the church. So when you talk about you know being loyal um, to the tradition and loyal to the church, the loyalty, as Chesterton says, has to be also about the democracy of the dead. That we that, that you talk about inventing something. We invented something in the 1960s that isn't particularly gainly that doesn't draw people in with with a depth of of spirituality that the older uh, uh, liturgy displayed, Um, that was radical in in its uh, departure and its, its sort of brusque departure from what we had earlier. And so I I think for all these reasons, and, you know, we go back to that document of of Vatican II about the liturgy that talks about the Latin language, Gregorian, you know, we've talked about that a million times already. So, you know, the idea that that somehow people who are looking back and saying, well, wait a minute, you know, 60 years ago, suddenly we we come up with this entirely new thing and that to go back to what we had then is regarded as somehow schismatic or it's somehow, it's... It's been been banned from our use. I mean, that's another thing that Ratzinger said. That they, how can you take something that was holy and was the expression of our unity with, with the Lord in the Eucharist and just say that that form of it is no longer can, can no longer be used? So there, there's something very odd about the way I think that now Cardinal Roach approaches this. Uh, clearly, it, he's he's expressing what Francis wants, although he's been so. Um, He's been been so absolute about it that we hear some rumors that the Pope actually has been a little bit uh, annoyed with him, that that the Pope himself begins to be uh, criticized because people think that he is behind the the harsher uh, steps that Roach has been taking. But look, this is very odd. I don't think that this attempt to tamp down the, the traditional Latin language is going to work. I think we're going to see some interesting changes in the
0: future. The actor Shia LaBeouf was recently interviewed about his conversion to Catholicism. He plays Padre Pio in a new film. He claims the traditional Latin mass, Bob, played a role in his conversion. Listen. Latin mass affects me deeply, deeply. How come? Because it feels like they're not selling me a car. And when I go to some mass with the guitars and stuff, yeah. and I'm from, you know, Santa Inez, right? So that's where I was catechized. And there's a lot of guitar playing. And there's a lot of like what feels like, um, th- like they're trying to sell me on an idea. You know, Christ the King in Oakland does a Latin mass every day of the week. And it feels like it's it's not being done to sell me on anything. Mm-hmm. And it feels almost like, like I'm being let in on something very special. And the quiet. Uh, um, It it activates something in me where it feels like I found something. That's uh, Shia LaBeouf with with Bishop Barron. Uh, He is not unlike many young people I've encountered, Bob, who are drawn to the mystery, to the wonder of the traditional Latin mass, the otherness of it. Why is the Vatican so insistent on stamping this out? Surely this had to come up at some point during this consistory.
1: I didn't hear it. I, you know, I talked with a lot of people, and, and that doesn't seem to have been uh, like there was a lot of silence, from what I'm told, during this point of the the, the, the various discussions in the, in the consistory. Um, You would have expected that maybe that would have come up because it it was not the case that the bishops of the world or the cardinals of the world were demanding the suppression of the traditional Latin Mass. But look, the the reason why that mystery is so attractive to people is because the reforms of the Mass that we got are on a very superficial level. You know, on on the one hand, you do want to have a, a liturgy and you do want to have a church that speaks to people today. But when what today is, is a very kind of practical, you know, horizontal level society. Where we don't even have a very deep sense of nature, let alone of, of what's super nature, what's supernatural. Right. You take those elements from society, like guitar playing and whatnot. That look, there's a place for guitar music. You love certain guitar music. So so do I. Anybody who loves music will like various different types of music. It's certain certain forms lend themselves more readily to the kinds of spaces spiritual spaces that are not just the emotional, um, what's normally emotional in the the society and in the time that we're living in right now. And I think that what LaBeouf was responding to there is something that really transcends every particular time and that takes you back over thousands of years. I mean, this this is something that is based, the way we we read from scripture is based in the ancient Hebrew way of, of conducting their liturgies. And so... We're really, you know, we're digging back into a very rich human thing as well as a Catholic thing. So it's not surprising. It's not surprising that what is yeah. regarded as mystery really just conveys something that you cannot, by some sort of rational reform, uh, hope to achieve in the modern world.
0: No, no, it's 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 the past and the present and and the the and the supernatural all meeting in that one moment. I mean, it is Christ crucified and our moment and the future. It's everything, and that um, the the Novus Ordo strains to capture that sort that sense of awe, and um, it it can do it. But it's a it's a rarity because the form is so broken and do it yourself, if you will. Now Cardinal Roche spoke in glowing terms, Bob, about quote the inculturation of the Roman Missal into the Amazonian culture. How about the inculturation of the Roman Missal to the traditional rat, L- Roman rite? I mean, w- w- again, w- we're justifying odd permutations of the of the mass but then trying to blow away and destroy everything that the current mass sits upon.
1: Yeah, and I I see in this a, a deep problem with our Western civilization in general. You know, we tend to look at other civilizations, whether it's indigenous peoples in the Amazon or people in Africa or Asian cultures, and think that somehow, Um, You know, they're superior to us. And look, given the discussion we just had about the liturgy, there's a way in which those cultures do tend to touch on timeless uh, ancestral truths and and depth about nature and about supernature. But at the same time, it's odd that our own tradition is not hardly valued at all. We we take this thing that was developed over the course of centuries and slowly was built up into a magnificent edifice whether it's a, it's a full high latin mass or it's a low mass there, there were things that had been built into that that you just simply cannot reproduce because you decide you're gonna have a liturgical reform. And the, the results are, are clear. We we know people used to go to those masses, even if you know, we hear the story that they didn't understand. I remember my parents didn't know any Latin, but they took their missiles and they had their, their Latin and English right. on Facebook pages and they followed along and they knew what was going on. Um, what we have right. now is very easy to understand, but is what we're understanding all that important to us. I mean, we, we just don't seem to be, those, those profound spiritual truths, those profound spiritual realities don't seem to be carried to the heart, as Cardinal Newman once said, when uh, we're, we're mm-hmm. experiencing them in the liturgies.
0: The, the, the universality is also blown, Bob, when you don't have a common language, you know, in, in Paris, in, in Madrid, and in the United States. It, uh, there was once, at one time, we had a common language, and that Latin was everywhere, it was foreign to everyone, yet it was home, and it was the home language of the church for centuries and centuries. And to shatter that, it, that that's a, that's a big trade-off. Um, at a press conference in the Vatican last Friday, Cardinal Jean-Claude Hollerich of uh, Luxembourg and Cardinal Mario Gresh of Malta introduced the continental phase of the Synod on synodality. When asked about whether the voices of Catholic priests and lay people who love the Latin Mass would be listened to in the process, Cardinal Grinch, who is Secretary General of the Synod of Bishops, said, quote, the listening process means not only for bishops to listen to the people, but also the bishop has to be listened to, because sometimes there's the risk of it being a monologue on one side or the other." End quote. Uh, and when asked if the cardinals were worried about political interests and how they might hijack the synod, Gretsch said, quote, the synod will be hijacked by one, the Holy Spirit, if I can use this term. Bob, your thoughts on those responses, and what do you think we can expect here?
1: Raymond, you're giving me some very hard questions, and it's almost one in the morning here in Rome. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Look, this process—I uh, you know, I mentioned earlier in this segment that the, we we had bishops in the actual extraordinary synod asking what synodality is—is is at this point, and right. we're we're into this continental phase, and, and and these these men who've been you know dec- living decades in the church don't know what we're we're talking about. The the very process of this is just so bureaucratic. Um, you know, God love the people who participated in this at the parish level and the diocesan level. And then, you know, these reports get pushed up the food chain, and now we're going to have the continental level. And then, you know, someone is going to have to sort all this stuff out. And um, maybe cherry picking is uh, too strong a word, but but you cannot take the input of 100,000 people and condense it into something that is going to be representative. And especially if among those 100,000, some of the most, um, let's, let's say, radically motivated, we see this in Germany, the most radically motivated people seem to to show up and stay the longest at these right. t- types of meetings. So, look, the the process, I, I don't think you can blame the Holy Spirit about whatever is going to come out of the process. This is very much a b- bureaucratic process that is going to lead, I fear, to where it, it, it has already been pre- predetermined it's going to go to. Uh, Maybe I'll be wrong. The Holy Spirit is a spirit of surprises, as the Pope always tells us. But if you have to just judge by um, sort of human uh, standards, it's pretty clear that there's going to be a heavy human uh, intervention in what is worthy of being discussed.
0: Yeah, well, we'll, we can decide and, and discern which spirit showed up when it's over, not at this far away date, but on Sunday, Pope Francis became the first pope in 728 years to open the Holy Door at the Basilica in the Italian city of Le Aquila, which you mentioned earlier. Uh, The opening of the Holy Door marking a key moment in the annual celebration established by Pope Celestine V in 1294. It's known as the Celestine Forgiveness. Now, Pope Francis visited the city's cathedral, which is still being rebuilt, after it was badly damaged during a 2019 earthquake. More than 300 people sadly died in that earthquake. The Pope wore a hard hat while touring the damaged church. During his visit, the Pope said that he wanted the central Italian city to become a capital of forgiveness and peace and reconciliation. Le Aquila is also the burial place of Pope Celestine V, who led the Catholic Church for just five months before his resignation. Now, in the spring, the Vatican's announcement that Pope Francis would visit this town uh, prompted speculation that the trip could be a prelude to the 85-year-old Pope's resignation. Bob, that sort of fizzled out. I mean, they, they didn't continue that narrative, though, boy, we heard months of breathless coverage that the Pope was about to retire, and you saw phalanxes of press people going over to try to cover this.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's still a mystery why he decided to do that uh, in the midst of the Ordinary Synod making the Cardinals on Saturday and then the Extraordinary Synod for the two days, Monday and Tuesday. But I have to say, I I found it very moving. And and actually, that part of of Francis's papacy is really him at his best. It was very, you know, you can probably still find the, the video on YouTube or someplace, but it's very moving. He had to be pushed up to the doors in a wheelchair begin with, and then this very big I think a Swiss guard came and kind of helped him to his feet and got him close to the door and then he knocked very loud with it, this um olive wood stick you know kind of kind of a uh, mm-hmm. almost a club on the door and then when the doors were opened he had to you know he has a very bad knee problem so he had to kind of inch his way across the threshold into it but I found it to be very moving and you know given what L'Aquila has been through because of the earthquake and this long history that it had, that for me, when I actually witnessed it, I thought was more important than, you know, the, the rumors about the resignation. The, the Pope's health mm-hmm. is clearly declining. Um, he's 85, I suppose, now. Five, yeah. Um, yeah he he's, uh, you know, he won't be around forever, but I think this this, this part of his legacy is really... The best of him. He does have that charismatic ability to reach out to people and to talk about forgiveness. Um, that it is is quite rare. Other popes have talked about it. John Paul II did encyclicals about mercy, so did Benedict, and so does have other popes in the tradition. But I think this is the better part of, of, of Francis, quite apart from you know the speculation about his resignation. But he's um, mm-hmm. you know, he's, got, he's getting near the end, and we're gonna just have to see how this plays itself out.
0: Mm-hmm. Bob, before we go, I, I want to get your reaction to this. An advisory panel of theological consultants has recommended that the cause of canonization for Father Vincent Capadano be suspended. Now, Father Capadano was a-, a priest chaplain. He served courageously as a Marine during the Vietnam War. The panel wrote this With ongoing military actions in the world today, Raising someone from the military for veneration may not be appropriate for our church. Bob, your thoughts, and do they realize how faithful Catholics in the military interpret and read and feel about this kind of statement? Yeah, you know, the
1: the Father Capodanno case is, is sort of a classic. You know, we remember from World War II and earlier wars that, you know, the priest who would go out on the battlefield and, and I, be killed. Sometimes, you know, administering the last rites to uh, soldiers is regarded as a hero. You know, it, it's, 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 several countries have always thought of that as one of the most heroic things that a, that a man of the cloth could do. I, I fear this goes back to what I might almost describe as Francis's sentimental pacifism. I mean, he has he, called for, you know, a revaluation of just war theory. Uh, just last week, at, at um, you know his his Wednesday Wednesday audience, he talked about how everybody involved in a war is 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 mad, meaning crazy. That you know you can't say you're not mad if you're involved in a war. Well, they had to back off on this. You notice there was a, a statement after the fact that he wasn't making a political statement that both sides in Ukraine were you know were equally uh, to blame. But it's the kind of um, almost default setting that he has when he thinks about warfare, that, that somehow th- that war in and of itself is, is wrong. Look, war is terrible. Anybody who's ever served in the military will tell you it, it, it's a terrible thing, even though they're proud of their service. But there's a difference between uh, a, a priest who dies on the battlefield and or a, a, a soldier who dies defending a country that has been the, the uh, victim of an unjust aggression and just, you know, right. the wildness of some invader. I mean, these are, are basic, classic distinctions in Catholic moral thought, Catholic thinking about just war theory that goes at least all the way back to St. Augustine and probably further. So, you know, I just it just seems to me that this is one of these places where there's a certain sentimentality that has gotten hold over and above what is clear thinking about, unfortunately, What happens when evil people in the world do evil things. They have to be responded to, otherwise we're just going to surrender to um, people who just think they can do whatever they want.
0: Yeah, well, I, I think for men and women in the armed services, having a clergyman there, having a priest among them, particularly when they go into the war field, uh, th- this is a boon for them spiritually and otherwise. And you think of father duffy and and my friend Archbishop Philip Hannon, who served in the first and Second World War, I mean, these were incredible men, and the the men who served with them have such deep, passionate memories, and, and they they help they help them maintain their sanity in the chaos of war. And I think to discredit that, and the possibility of sainthood in a uniform is really disgraceful. I'll
1: just say it. It's disgraceful. Um, uh, a let's, funeral let's mass let's this the... I mean, Go ahead. I, I think we can hope that the Father Cappana will come back um, to, and receive yeah. his, his his proper honors at some point.
0: Yeah, and Archbishop Roleo has said, uh, who's the head of the military archdiocese, he is going to continue to pursue the cause, and it should be continued. Uh, A funeral mass was said this week, Bob, for former Archbishop of Milwaukee, Rembert Weakland. He died last week at the age of 95. Um, It was held Tuesday at the Cathedral of St. John the Evangelist. The mass came with controversy as survivors of clergy abuse demonstrated outside the church. Now, during his time as archbishop from 1977 to 2002, Weakland covered up abuse and knowingly transferred abusive clergy to new parishes. Survivors argued that a public funeral was a celebration of Weakland. This man being buried Tuesday is
1: unrepentant, he died unrepentant for the harm that he caused.
0: Weakland was also forced to resign, as you know, Bob, as archbishop uh, after it became known that the archdiocese paid out nearly half a million dollars hush money to a man with whom Weakland had a sexual relationship. Uh, Your thoughts, Weakland was never forced to face any consequences, Bob, for the abuse he allowed to happen, uh, nor for the 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 money he misused from the diocese.
1: Yeah and after uh, the scandal came out he wrote a book which basically tried to justify himself you know making excuses that psychiatrists had told him it was okay to put these men back into service and even kind of uh, trying to smooth over his own sordid personal history. Um, Look, I met him a couple of times back when the bishops were working on uh, an economics uh, uh, document uh, in Washington. He was a very um, kind of imposing figure. He he had a very uh, nice manner and he he had a way of of speaking that just made you feel a certain respect for what he had to say. I, I find that that covered up something that was so painful. That we, all, we kind of all uh, detected that there was something fishy going on there. But when it actually came out, it really felt very, very sordid. And um, you, you saw that Father James Martin at first praised him as, as the friend who unfortunately went astray, but then, of course, had to back off when he saw that the pain that many of the, the victims of those priests actually felt and expressed when when this was going on, so look, it's it's a mess. Um, I think the, the it would have been better if his funeral had been a, a, a quieter affair. Uh, there were many people who tried to justify, as he did, um, you know, what he what he did, because you know the the secular world has a very strong sympathy for so-called closeted uh, Catholic um, clerics, but I think he overall was a very bad effect had a very bad effect on the United States and. Uh, It's an effect that has not gone away in in any way, shape, or form. It still continues, and there are still people hurting from it. So um, we're going to have other cases like this, and I think the church has to be very cautious about how it handles them, uh, just so it doesn't give the impression that, yeah, well, things happened in the past, but so on. Right.
0: well, he, that, that, you're right. This should have been done very quietly, if at all. It should have been done in the dead of night with no one watching. It's certainly not a public celebration of any kind. I mean, are we going to have a, a Mass for McCarrick, too, in a few years? Uh, anyway, we will leave it there, Bob. I'll let you get some rest. Thank you for staying up for us in Rome. For more commentary, Robert Royal is always available at the thecatholicthing.org. Uh, read his pieces. It's important stuff. Thank you, Bob. <laughs> My new book, The Wise Men Who Found Christmas, is coming this October. I hope all of you will come out and see me during the book tour. I will be in Nashville, and the villages, and Mesa, Washington, D.C., New Orleans. Go to RaymondArroyo.com. All the dates are there. You can also pre-order a signed copy from Premier Editions. It's all at RaymondArroyo.com. You'll see the link. And, of course, the book is available from the EWTN Religious Catalog and wherever books are sold. IS IT POSSIBLE TO RUN A BUSINESS AND BE BOTH PROFITABLE AND VIRTUOUS? THIS IS A QUESTION OFTEN ASKED BY MANAGERS AND EMPLOYEES. HOW CAN A BUSINESS MAKE MONEY AND STILL BE PEOPLE-CENTERED? FOR ANSWERS, WE TURN TO THE DIRECTOR OF ENTREPRENEURSHIP AT THE BUSH SCHOOL OF BUSINESS AND ECONOMICS AT CATHOLIC UNIVERSITY AND AUTHOR OF THE NEW BOOK, THE ART OF PRINCIPLED ENTREPRENEURSHIP, CREATING ENDURING VALUE. PLEASE WELCOME BACK TO THE PROGRAM ANDREAS WIDMER. Andreas, thanks for being here uh, before we get to the book, I need to start with your time serving in the Pontifical Swiss Guard under Pope John Paul II uh, you, you were a Swiss guard between 1986 and '88 How did that service shape the way you look at business and entrepreneurship today
2: thanks for having me Raymond it's always a pleasure to be here and thanks for giving me this opportunity what what changed in my life during those two years is that I entered the guards uh, not exactly as a non-believer but as a a sort of more cultural catholic and of course that all changed when i met john paul ii and he showed me a view of the world an understanding of the world an anthropology of humanity as he would call it that once you ring that bell you can see the world in another way and that has had a huge impact on my life and that's actually ever since uh, what i do and what i now try to write about
0: YOU OFTEN SPEAK OF THE GOSPEL OF WORK. IN FACT, YOU TEACH AN ONLINE COURSE ON THE SUBJECT WHERE YOU EXPLORE THE MEANING OF WORK AND HOW IT CONTRIBUTES TO THE HUMAN FULFILLMENT AND SUCCESS. Yeah. WHAT DO YOU MEAN BY WORK AS GOSPEL? And, AND HOW SHOULD FAITH INFORM
2: OUR WORK AND THE WAY WE CONDUCT BUSINESS? Yeah. I mean work as gospel in a sort of play of, um what Jean-Paul called the gospel of life. The gospel mm-hmm. principally just means the good news. And the good news is that we, when we work, we actually get to imitate God, the creator, because we're made in the image and likeness of God. So work itself is a way that we imitate God. And when you imitate somebody like that a lot, then you become more like them. And so work is a part of our, yeah. our path to holiness.
0: I want to move on to the new book, The Art of Principled Entrepreneurship. Uh, From where did this concept of principled entrepreneurship originate? And what inspired you to focus on that concept in the book?
2: Yeah. So I have a friend uh, called Art Sioka, and he uh, was very much into a a business strategy uh, or a business... um, A theory called MBM, market-based management. Um, And in there is this principled entrepreneurship as a piece of it, which basically focuses on uh, the person-centered management of a company. And that is something that he talked to me a lot about, and I became very interested Mm -hmm. in. I sort of merged that with my view of the theology of the body with John Paul II. And uh, the result of it is this book. What is that person-centered entrepreneurship? Define that term.
0: Look, I mean, everybody will say they're person-centered because they're worried about their, their clients or their, yeah. uh, the people they're serving, right?
2: Yeah. Look, at the end of the day, the economy should exist for people, not people for the economy. And we have lost mm. kind of the view, the, the center of this. It's okay to make money and all that, but we have to understand, again, going back to that principle, that when we create, we imitate God, that that itself is mm. a fulfilling an important thing, and if we lose, uh, if we lose traction of that, if we put other things in the center of the economy, just pure profitability or financial speculation, or so, then we lose track. We, we lose focus on the human person, and that leads to alienation. And mm. we're, we're seeing this every day. A, a recent research by Gallup has shown that two thirds of our workforce is disengaged. Those are people who can't mm. wait to get home in the evening. And I think that that is not a sign for them being bad or doing something wrong, but that is a sign of our culture of having lost the focus of what work is really all about.
0: Hmm. We hear a lot about entrepreneurship today, particularly when it comes to well-known entrepreneurs, uh, uh, Elon Musk or the the founder of Amazon, Jeff Jeff Bezos. Uh, In your book, you hold up a different model. You mentioned him a moment ago, Art uh, Choka. Uh, why is he a model that you hold up
2: in the book and tell us who who art is yeah Art to to me is sort of the CEO that nobody knows but everybody should know because what he was all about is to create a person-centered company not just on the basis of the employee but also on the basis of the folk uh, of of the customer he basically put the customer and and his employees or his teammates into the center of the equation of business and then instead of setting out to just create a product uh, or a company that does a certain thing he actually tried to focus on creating a culture that is a company that then produces ongoing new products and new innovation and new ideas to create what he calls enduring value. All of that comes, is the result of a culture in a company that produces this, not just an idea for one product or one service. Mm. No, I want to get into that idea of the
0: culture of a, of a yeah. workplace, the culture of a business. Um, but in the first chapter of the book, Andreas, you address. THE MARKET ECONOMY AND CAPITALISM AS WE KNOW IT, HERE IN THE UNITED STATES AT LEAST, AND YOU'RE RIGHT, THROUGH A PROCESS OF SOUL-SEARCHING, STUDY AND ANALYSIS, I RECONCILED MYSELF WITH THE MARKET ECONOMY. ALTHOUGH IT HAS LOTS OF ROOM FOR IMPROVEMENT, PRIMARILY AMONG ITS PARTICIPANTS, I FOUND IT TO BE A SYSTEM THAT BEST SUPPORTS HUMAN FLOURISHING AND FREEDOM. IT'S THE SYSTEM THAT, TO ME, REPRESENTS THE HIGHEST ACHIEVEMENT OF WESTERN CIVILIZATION, A SYSTEM OF PERSONAL FREEDOM AND responsibility. That can bring about the common good. Now, how did you come to that conclusion over
2: time? I looked at the economy and at the, <clears throat> really at the, the core of it, which is freedom of, uh, of, of creation, freedom of coming together and choosing what we do, mm-hmm. and really using our strengths to add value for others. And then whoever does that best has an edge and goes up, and if somebody else comes and does it better, it causes progress and we move forward. All of that works You know, people, I I don't like it when people say that the economy or business is like war. It's nothing like this. Believe me, I'm a soldier, I was a soldier, and the Mm -hmm. economy is nothing like the war. Business is nothing like war. Business is more like the Olympics, Mm -hmm. where we compete with each other. And Mm -hmm. if you watch last year's Olympics, you see that people who may have not been first, they may have been second or or 10th, And they're still happy to have competed because it was their personal best. They learn something. They compete better Mm -hmm. when there's somebody running uh, next to them. And for us as a society, having an economy that is based on free access and competition, uh, where everybody Mm -hmm. gets to participate, brings out the best in humanity. At the center of
0: the book, you've defined five pillars of principled entrepreneurship that you insist nourish the American dream. I want to run through them and explore them quickly. Uh, The economy exists for people, not people for the economy. We've kind of hit that. Uh, Number two, to work is to create. To create is to be human. Three, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Four, always seek to create win-win solutions. Five, always think like an entrepreneur. Uh, I want to go quickly to that second point, to work is to create, to create is to be human. Uh, Why
2: is creativity, innovation, so crucial to entrepreneurship? It goes back to the idea of us as humans to fully flourish when we work. If you ever meet somebody who is out of work or you have have, have the experience yourself, it is actually something that diminishes us, that makes us, in a sense, less human. For us to work and to compete like this and to create is to Mm -hmm. be fully human. Uh, spiritually, of course, this is because we were creating the image and likeness of the creator. We are meant, uh, we are made to create. Um, this is a part of how we fully become uh, who we are meant to be. Yeah, I love the line, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Explain that to people. So I use this sentence, which is a a, a well-known and much-used sentence. With many of these titles, I use things that people are sort of aware of, but I go over them and give them deeper meaning. Culture eating strategy for breakfast. What I mean with this is that uh, what I said earlier, that most people when they start a company, not most, but many people who start a company think that this is like the Eureka Eureka moment where you come up with a business idea or or a product idea and then you create that. Well, mm-hmm. the result of that is sort of a, a company that has the, has one good thing, like a product or something, and then it stifles, then it, right. then it sort of lands again. Much more important mm. is to focus as an entrepreneur or as a manager or as a CEO, creating the culture of the company that then begets the innovation and the mm. progress and, and the competitiveness of the company. And so... I would say more, in the beginning, more than just a product, we should build and focus on creating a culture in our economy, in in our businesses, that that is to say, that is conducive to human flourishing, and the rest sort of comes like a cascade from that. Yeah, well, uh, unleashing
0: creatives and sort of, you know, managing them at points, but unleashing that creative spirit, that ingenuity and guiding it, that really is what a business exists to do. And. ALL TOO OFTEN, ENTERPRISES CRUMBLE ON THAT ONE PRINCIPLE. Um, I LOVE ALWAYS SEEK TO CREATE WIN-WIN SOLUTIONS OR SITUATIONS, RATHER. IF ONLY CATHOLIC GROUPS WOULD GET THIS RIGHT, ANDREAS, yeah. IT COULD MAKE AN ENORMOUS DIFFERENCE. SADLY, you OFTEN SEE ENVY AND PETTINESS, AND IT KEEPS EVERYBODY IN THIS VERY SMALL Ghetto, AND THE MESSAGE NEVER GETS OUT. HOW DO YOU GET AROUND THAT, CREATING A WIN-WIN SITUATION
2: WHEN PEOPLE FEEL there's, THE ONLY WAY FOR ME TO WIN IS FOR YOU TO LOSE? That is the greatest misunderstanding of the market economy. People think Mm -hmm. that the economy is a zero-sum game and nothing could be further from the truth. The economy exists by somebody saying, how may I help you? That's the core question of business. How may I help you? That includes everything we need. It includes me and you and how I can help. Now, if I do this right, I use my God-given talents to add value for you, which you then are willing to pay more for than I paid for it to make it. That new that new value, we measure that with money, profit, that new value is new money, has never been there before. So to compare yeah. it to the idea of the economy being like a pizza, the economy is not like a pizza. The economy is like a pizza shop, like a pizzeria. We make yeah. pizza. Yeah. So this whole idea then, right. when you look at the economy as a zero-sum game, you come up immediately mm. with the idea, well, we need to redistribute wealth. No, no, no. What we need to do is to make more pizza, give more people access to enable their create creativity, to integrate them into networks of productivity and exchange so they can be productive and fulfill themselves, and not only through the work that they're doing, but through the creativity and through the generation of new wealth. Uh, uh, Andreas,
0: I am not a huge fan of bureaucracy, as anybody who's watched this show over many years can tell you, though a certain amount is necessary, I understand. Yeah. How can bureaucracy get in the way? Of the principled entrepreneurship that you are making the argument for here, doesn't it stifle creativity? Uh, you know, and, and is there a way to make it work in harmony with this entrepreneurial vision you put forward?
2: Yeah, the first thing is to understand that idea that the economy is not a zero-sum game. That's very important, and, mm. and uh, bureaucracies, the government, need to understand that. Second is this concept is was one of the uh, ideas I explain in the book. Uh, about creative destruction the way think of a forest Mm -hmm. the way a a forest grows is that the big old trees fall over eventually first they dominate and they give shade to everything things coming on up underneath and then eventually they fall and new growth comes up that is creative Mm -hmm. destruction right and and the fall of it Mm -hmm. even has a benefit it it creates soil and and new things come up with it the economy is exactly the same way we should not try to uphold large old trees that sort of you know um, outlived their usefulness in a sense but we should uh-huh. always encourage competition in the economy we should do everything to increase and to 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 ensure competition and nothing to decrease it because as long as we have this competition the consumer us all of us actually benefit because we get the faster cheaper uh, cheaper better kind of solutions out of that kind of system and that's also good for the for the bureaucracy of the government because that there you're looking at tax systems and, and, and tax revenues and so on right. so so the bureaucracy sometimes gets in, in in the way by trying to maintain the status quo and in the economy that that is actually not the way to go
0: yeah or you know in the creative arts you, you often see these companies where the bureaucracy tries to pick winners and losers that the audience don't agree with. You know, so they're 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 fighting, counter programming their own yeah. audience. And you see this in big studios, in small operations. It's an amazing thing to sort of witness. Um, what do I call it? Fail upward. People failing yeah. upward. You know, they get less and less ratings, less and less audience, yeah. but 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 people continue to push them. It's astounding. Um, yeah. And you know, as long as we're talking about Mother Angelica, and or rather we're talking about bureaucracy, I was thinking of Mother Angelica. Who used to say she could not stand committees or bureaucracy? Yeah. She says, you know, a committee. Most people, the Lord tells them to do something, they gather a committee, they do a feasibility study, they lay out a budget,
2: and by that time, you've already forgotten what the Lord asked you to do. There is this idea that she she taps into there, that what we're meant to be, we are meant to be teams and work in teams, and and you can uh, Mm -hmm. even have some rules for that, which you can compare to bureaucracy. But the teams, and what Mother Angelica did so well, she found people with different God-given talents and then let them do, like what you're doing, totally focus on what their talent is, and then have other people make up for their non-talents. And if you have a team together where everybody gets to practice and and fulfill their God-given talents, then the teams become larger than the sum of their parts, and that's where you get this economic miracle of great prosperity.
0: I agree. Uh, You you know, uh, Andreas, years ago, uh, a a university in Miami contacted me after the Mother Angelica biography, uh, you know, had had spread around the country. People had read it. And they were using it as a textbook in entrepreneurship um, and kind of inspired entrepreneurship. Talk to me for a moment about that branch of study that sort of, you know, Mother Angelica never had budgets initially. You know, she, she sort of went with her gut and where the audience was going. Is that a Is that illicit approach to a business in this day and age?
2: It has always been, and it will always be. I think Mother Angelica is, is, when, when she becomes a, when she's declared a saint, I want to make her the patron saint of the American dream because that is exactly what (laughs) she represents, that that she comes from nowhere in an environment where you think she's not not gonna have any chances or amount to anything, and she overcomes all Mm -hmm. that by finding her God-given talent and finding a way to add value for others. None of this at EWTN would would work if the value proposition of how may I help you wasn't figured out, Mm -hmm. she did she helped them with the network and with the kind of news and information and 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 programming that people loved and she found the people Mm -hmm. to deliver that value um value proposition um that were just excellent and it's it's a a case study in how to be innovative and how to in my opinion be a principled entrepreneur
0: yeah Yeah. no no she she identified
2: that need in the audience and then
0: she fulfilled it and, and, and expanded on it. And never, Co- lost, Co- she never
2: lost sight of the, per- of the human person. This, to her, was, of exactly. course, about Jesus Christ. And as a, as a, right. a, through an extension of that, through, it was about each person who's watching this every day. I, I remember seeing her on TV, and she talks to the individual person. It was about each individual yeah. person, and it was also about each, and each individual employee. And, and that is yeah. uh, what I mean by person-centeredness.
0: Mm. BEFORE WE RUN OUT OF TIME, INFLATION IS AT A 40-YEAR HIGH RIGHT NOW, 9.1% CURRENTLY, AND YOU AND I KNOW THAT'S PROBABLY MUCH HIGHER. THE GOVERNMENT USES A LOT OF VOODOO TO yeah. uh, COME UP WITH THAT NUMBER. Uh, THIS MAKES IT AWFULLY HARD FOR FOLKS WHO WANT TO BUY A HOME uh, and, and, AND WHO DREAM OF A BUSINESS. AND I OFTEN THINK OF THAT OLD adage: NECESSITY IS THE MOTHER OF INVENTION. Uh,
2: ANDREAS, IS THERE A SILVER
0: LINING IN THIS HARSH ECONOMIC ENVIRONMENT?
2: I think there is. If you're looking at the latest numbers of entrepreneurship, over the last 40 years, we had a dramatic decline. I think we're at 40% of what we used to be in the 70s, literally, Mm. and this is even with all the tech boom and everything, we have 40% of the amount of entrepreneurs that we had uh, back in the 70s, except after COVID and now with this mass exit, they call it, Uh, you're Mm -hmm. starting to see numbers where we have in a few months as much uh, new startups as we had in years in a year before. And I think there is this silver Mm -hmm. lining that a lot of people are saying, "Okay, enough of this bureaucratic large company thing. Let me go out and actually pursue my uh, talent and my happiness and start my own company. And I encourage everybody out there to really to look at this book. And it's a a step by step approach to Mm -hmm. think about how can I do this? And, and give you some ideas and some, some points of reflection uh, to go about this, to put this into reality.
0: Mm. No, it's a fascinating read. Andreas will leave it there. The book, The Art of Principled Entrepreneurship, Creating Enduring Value by Andreas Widmer is available at bookstores everywhere and online. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Raymond. That is all the time we have for now. Be sure to catch us next week. Until then, I'll be scouting the world over for all that is seen. And unseen. On behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, thank you for watching. I'm Raymond Arroyo. Bye now.